quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead, the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, which today intently focused on the use of force by Officer Chauvin. This afternoon, we heard from the special agent who investigated Chauvin's actions, and as the person who handled much of the evidence in the case, Special Agent James Ryerson confirmed exactly how long officers stayed on top of George Floyd and how long Chauvin had his knee on Floyd's neck, even after Mr. Floyd had stopped speaking and became unresponsive. Today, we also heard from a Los Angeles police sergeant hired by the prosecution as an expert when it came to use of force. He testified that the amount of force Derek Chauvin used against Floyd was, in his opinion, his opinion, excessive. But he also said that some of Chauvin's actions were, in his view, reasonable, as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports. Sergeant, just a reminder, you're still under oath. Yes, sir. Today's testimony, more cops taking the stand against former officer Derek Chauvin. In your opinion, does defendant's use of force during that time period need to be reasonable within the entire time period? Yes. Sergeant Jody Steiger from the Los Angeles Police Department was called by prosecutors as a use of force expert and testified, like others have, the force Derek Chauvin used on George Floyd was excessive. He was in the prone position. He was handcuffed. He was not attempting to resist. He was not attempting to uh, assault the officers, kick, punch, or anything of that nature. Officers are. But Chauvin's attorney during cross examination focused on what could have happened, specifically one of their central arguments that the growing crowd became a perceived threat and distracted Chauvin. Don't touch me. And when someone starts threatening you, it's a possible possibility that an officer can view that as a potential deadly assault is about to happen. That's what they're trained. Yes, that's what they're trained. The defendant and the other officers... But during prosecutor questioning... I did not perceive them as being a threat. And, and why is that? Because they were merely filming and they were... Most of it was their concern for Mr. Floyd. The defense also moved to show there were points where Chauvin's knee may not have been on the neck, but on some portions of the shoulder. Prosecutors called the placement irrelevant. Is the risk related to the pressure on the neck or the pressure on the body? This, the pressure on the body, any additional pressure on the body, complicates breathing more so than um, if there was no pressure at all. And testimony is ongoing. Special Agent Mackenzie Anderson is currently on the stand. And right before her, we heard from Special Agent James Ryerson. And we had an extremely key exchange, really, in regards to the defense. They played a portion of a video, of a body camera video, from May 25th, 2020. And they asked that special agent whether it appeared George Floyd said, I took too many drugs, to which he initially said, yes, that's what I heard. There was a brief break. They came back. Prosecutors then played 
played more context from that video, basically started a little bit earlier and allowed it to play in. And now the special agent says he heard, I ain't do no drugs. Now, that's those would be the words from George Floyd back on May 25th. And the reason that exchange is so crucial, uh, especially to the defense, is because that goes back to their central argument in this. They argue that George Floyd's primary cause of death was not a knee to the neck and asphyxia and choking out from that, but that it was an overdose tied to it from methamphetamine and fentanyl found in his system combined with his medical history. And I should also note that when that sergeant was on the stand, the defense played that exact same exchange and the sergeant wouldn't even confirm what was said, saying that I can't make out what's being said. And as uh, having seen it myself, I will say it is difficult to hear what's being said in that moment, Jake. Hmm. All right. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Let's discuss this with former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers and 34-year law enforcement veteran Neil Franklin. Jennifer, let me start with you. I, I want to start with you get, to get your reaction to what we just heard from Omar. The police investigator first said that after rewatching the body camera video, he heard George Floyd say, quote, I ate too many drugs. Then the prosecution played a longer part of the video and the witness now says that George Floyd said, quote, I ain't do no drugs. What's the strategy here? Well, this sort of thing happens, Jake. What happened is the defense lawyer actually got the witness to say that by saying, did he say, I ate too many drugs and the witness agreed. Then the prosecutors had to go back, play more of the tape and clean it up, say, no, that's not what he said. It was something different. So what the defense is trying to do, of course, is to plant this seed that the main causation of death was not asphyxiation by the knee to the neck. It was the drugs. And if you have the defendant saying, I ate too many drugs, that feeds right into the narrative that they're trying to lay here. So the prosecutors really had to deal with that. And, you know, it is what it is. The jury heard both of those things. Ultimately, it's the jury's view of what was said that will govern. And if they are at all questioning it in the jury room, you can bet that they'll be listening to that very closely to see what they themselves hear. I've never heard anyone say I ate too many drugs in my life. And it's just not really a common expression. Uh, Neil, the Los Angeles police sergeant who testified as an expert witness said that Derek Chauvin used deadly force, period. But he also testified that some of Chauvin's actions were reasonable, including some force against Mr. Floyd when he was initially resisting, which no one denies that he was. You're certified as an expert witness on the use of force as well. What do you think? Yes. Well, uh, Sergeant Steiger was right. But for a very brief moment, was Chauvin justified in using that force? And that was when they pulled him out of the car. He went in one side of the car, uh, you know, basically saying and making the case that he has an issue with claustrophobia. So they brought him out the other side of the car and he was still somewhat upset. They placed him on the ground in a prone position, handcuffed. And for that immediate moment, yes, they may have been justified in using some force to get him into the prone position. But then once that was done, again, he's handcuffed. Now, as the other officer asked Chauvin to do, place him on his side, place Mr. Floyd on his side in a recovery position. That's what Chauvin denied to do. That's what he should have done. He went beyond that moment where he was justified in using some force. He went well beyond that to the point of this force becoming excessive, to the point where um, Mr. Floyd became unconscious, and then minute after minute after minute failing to render aid, failing to listen to the officer, failing to listen to the people on the sidewalk pleading Mm -hmm. to check the pulse, 
to provide medical attention, that's where he messed up. Jennifer, one of the main points that Chauvin's defenders tried to make today was that even if uh, George Floyd had been ha- was handcuffs, he still could have been a serious threat to Chauvin and the other officers. Take a listen. A person who's in handcuffs can continue to be a threat. Agreed? Yes. They can kick you. Correct. They could bite you. Correct. They could thrash and get free and start running, right? In certain instances, yes. And in certain instances, uh, they can even get your weapon, right? Yes. Now, I get that's theoretical, but we have the video, and George Floyd doesn't kick, he doesn't bite, he doesn't fight back against the officers for the nine minutes that Chauvin was kneeling on his neck. But the defense, I guess, is basing the argument that Officer Chauvin could have had a reasonable fear that George Floyd could have done that, and obviously they just need to convince one juror uh, that, that that was a reasonable fear. That's right, Jake. You know, this all goes back to the burden of proof here and the notion that you need all 12 jurors to agree unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt. All the defense needs is one juror that has a reasonable doubt as to one element of the crime. And so they usually take what's kind of a scattershot take, which is poke holes as much as you can all over the place. Whatever is is something that you can kind of poke at and say, this isn't right, this is a doubt, this is a doubt, that's what they'll do. So here it's reasonableness. Is it reasonable that they might have feared the crowd? Is it reasonable that he might have had fear that there's a large man there and maybe he's going to be kicked? They're just kind of throwing it all out there, hoping that something will stick with at least one juror. And we'll continue to see that when we get to the key thing, which is causation, of course. And Neil, I want to get your take on this awful but lawful argument we also heard from Derek Chauvin's defense team today. Take a listen. Do you participate in a uh, training or present a training or have anything to do with a training called awful but lawful or lawful but awful, something like that? Yes. And so you would agree the general concept is sometimes the use of force, it looks really bad, right? Yes. And sometimes it may be so it may be caught on video, right? And it yes. looks bad, right? Yes. But it's still lawful. Yes. You're a former officer. What do you think about that argument? Well, I'm familiar with the term, but here's the point. Although it may be lawful and it appear awful, the key is reasonable. And you've heard a lot of Connor, the case Connor, uh, Graham versus Connor, which is about reasonable force by police officers. You heard that term used by the defense a lot today. The point here is that 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 term or you know, that case law is about officers making split second decisions about using force, you know, in line with what they know at the time, what's available to them at the time, split second decision. He had minutes. Chauvin had minutes to make decisions, to assess, to reassess, to adjust, to provide uh, medical attention to Mr. Floyd. That's not so you know, it wasn't the case. Awful, lawful, but it has to be reasonable. And I think that I have no doubt that the prosecution and those experts are making the case that Chauvin used unreasonable excessive force in this case. It's clear to me. And I think it's going to be clear to the jurors. And and Jennifer, we've heard from our team on the ground uh, in the courtroom uh, that jurors today became very interested and started taking a lot of notes when the LAPD use of force expert was asked about the crowd that was around Chauvin. The the defense is clearly trying to say that the officer was distracted, perhaps even felt threatened by the crowd. But 
we've seen video and photographs of the crowd. How likely will the defense be able to sway the jury on this topic when we see on video this this crowd did not appear to be threatening or, or, or hostile at all? You know, Jake, oftentimes the jury perks up when the participants perk up. So the fact that we saw a lot more cross-examination today, I think, probably interested them and got them a little more involved. Ultimately, I agree that the videotape is so clear and so strong that the jury's almost certain to find that the force was unreasonable. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's also very hard to read them. You know, you wish you could take a look. They're usually pretty stone-faced, but taking notes is a good indication, at least, that they're paying attention, which typically bodes well for the prosecution. All right, Neil Franklin, Jennifer Rogers, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it today. The White House you, now walking back a bold prediction about a vaccine milestone. Then, the Mississippi, Mississippi Secretary of State saying out loud the real reason why lots of Republicans don't want to expand voting access. Stay with us. In our Health Lead today, the variants versus the vaccine. Today we learned that the UK variant is now officially the most dominant strain of coronavirus in the U.S. Case numbers hovering about where, what they were this time last summer. And that's up 21% since two weeks ago. So that's not good news. Hospitalizations are also about 6%. Thankfully, deaths are down 16% from two weeks ago. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, despite ramped up vaccinations, Dr. Anthony Fauci is still warning it is premature to declare mission accomplished. That more contagious coronavirus variant first found in the UK now dominates here in the US. It is the most common lineage, period. And it's fueled an upswing of new cases and hospital admissions. Just five states account for 43% of all new cases this past week. But the nation's daily death toll still falling. Why? The CDC says that's down to vaccinations, particularly among the elderly. Last night, a bold prediction from the White House on the vax front. By the weekend, uh, half the adults in the country will have had their first shot. Over-optimistic? This morning, confirmation. Yeah, it was. Sometime, uh, likely this month, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get to about half. CNN analysis shows some states, like New York, might vaccinate all willing adults by mid-June. Some other states, like Georgia, might be the end of the year. The president remains cautious. We aren't at the finish line. So where is that finish line? We'll know it when we see it. It'll be obvious as the numbers come down rather dramatically. It's on the way. Hang in there. I will be going to karaoke as often and as much as I can. This 95-year-old veteran COVID survivor Bon Jovi fan is ready. What's that one about the cowboy and a motorcycle? Uh, Wanted wanted, dead or alive, yeah. So I've been pretty quick uh, during this pandemic to unfavorably compare the U.S. to other countries. Right now, we are doing relatively well, so it's only fair to point that out. Now, looking around the globe, Brazil, Turkey just logged their deadliest days. India just logged the most cases in a day. And Europe, the European Union, just missed a key vaccination target. So relatively, the U.S. doing pretty well right now. Jake? Especially with vaccines. 
Uh, thank you so much, Nick Watt. Uh, yeah. Let's bring in uh, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, so the UK variant, let's talk about it. It's more transmissible and it's now officially the most dominant strain of coronavirus in the United States. It's obviously not good news. What does it mean? Well, first of all, we've probably known that it was the most dominant for some time. There is a lag period when it comes to doing these genetic sequences. So it's been out there for a while. And we know in certain states, we can show you some of the states, it's, it's quite dominant. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about Florida, Georgia, and Michigan. And we know in Michigan, it's probably, uh, you know, at least a part of the big, re- big part of the reason why the numbers have continued to go up there. So it is of concern. Things that you could get away with before, Jake, you can't get away with. Uh, with a, a virus uh, variant like this, it's just not as forgiving. But, and I think this is an important but, the, the people who've been previously infected, as well as people who've been vaccinated, do seem to be protected against this variant. And therein lies the race that Nick was just talking about. Right, the vaccines versus the variants. It's exciting to hear the White House project that half of uh, all U.S. adults will have at least one dose in arm by the next few weeks. But, but obviously we need to keep underlining we're not nearly out of the woods yet. In fact, uh, cases are about what they were last summer. Yeah, I mean, if you look at these trends, I mean, you can follow this now. We're getting a longer sort of view of, of, of how this year has progressed. And, and you're right, cases are going up. And what we have typically seen all along, Jake, was that a few weeks after that, hospitalizations would go up. And then a few weeks after that, sadly, the deaths would go up. As we start to vaccinate and increasingly vaccinate the most vulnerable people, you'll almost see a backwards impact, meaning death rate goes down first then hospitalization, and then cases. And I think we're seeing that. I mean, cases around 65,000, that's somewhat flat compared to last week. Hospitalizations up a little bit, around 2% up compared to last week, 40,000 people in the hospital. But deaths are down 21% from last week, Jake. So we'll see if that continues. But that, that obviously is a really important data point. Yeah, obviously a lot of that is because so many people 65 and older are vaccinated, and those were the ones who were more prone to, to, to die from the, from the virus. That's President right. Biden moved the deadline up for all American adults to be eligible for a vaccine to April 19th. It's promising news, but as we know very well in Washington, D.C., eligibility is not getting a vaccine in your arm. Uh, It's not being able to even get a vaccine appointment. How do we fix this? That's that's the challenge. I mean, the two challenges are exactly this, the sort of procedural aspects of this, reaching communities that have been hard to reach, and also people simply being able to sign up and get their vaccine, and then vaccine hesitancy. But different places are going to be stymied for different reasons. Let me show you quickly. I don't know if we have New York and North Dakota. We can show you sort of how things are sort of progressing there. And it's important because New York's vaccinating really quickly. 6.6% of adults were vaccinated just in the past week, and they have really low vaccine hesitancy. North Dakota going much slower, but higher vaccine hesitancy. They will probably get all eligible adults vaccinated in both places around the same time, around the beginning of June. But again, for very different reasons. Point is, Jake, that we're looking at these numbers sort of broadly around the country, but these communities are going to have to, you know, address specific concerns depending on where you, where, you know, what's happening in your local community. I want to ask you a study from the journal Lancet Psychiatry found that one-third of COVID-19 patients experience psychological or neurological diagnoses within six months of being infected. What does that mean? What, what kinds of diagnoses does this include? Yeah, well, you know, this is a confluence of my world, Jake, uh, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint and, and reporting on this. It's very interesting. Um, so 
the, the more common neuropsychiatric diagnoses were things like anxiety. So 34%, as you mentioned, about a third of people had these long-term symptoms. 17% anxiety. Mood disorders made up another 14%. Much, more, uh, much less common were things like ischemic stroke, but it did occur. People had increased risk of dementia, things like that. We see this with other respiratory viruses as well, Jake. Even after flu, people might have a, a more temporary uh, impact uh, on you know, their mood, the amount of fatigue, headaches, things like that. What we're seeing here seems to last longer and be more severe. But Jake, we're just learning about this. I mean, we're essentially defining new diseases over and over again, and this post-COVID fog is another one. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks. Good to see you. It, it's not a full-throated support, but former President Trump is now responding to new reports about Congressman Matt Gates asking preemptively for a pardon, and that's, that's next. Back now with our politics lead and the revelation that Republican Florida Congressman Matt Gates privately asked people at the White House for a preemptive pardon for himself and other allies toward the end of the Trump presidency. Two sources confirm to CNN, the New York Times first broke the story. The pursuit of that pardon through aides came as the Justice Department was beginning its investigation into whether the congressman had a sexual relationship with a minor, a 17-year-old girl. Gates has denied the allegations. And today, former President Trump released a statement saying, quote, Congressman Matt Gates has never asked me for a pardon. It must also be remembered that he has totally denied the accusations against him, unquote, a carefully worded statement. The reporting was that he asked aides, not directly the president. We should note both CNN and The New York Times report that, that it was questions and requests to the White House, not Trump himself. Let's discuss. Uh, Gloria, let me start with you. The Times notes that it's unclear what Gates knew of the Justice Department probe at the time he was asking for this preemptive pardon. But you'd think you, you wouldn't need a preemptive pardon if you hadn't done anything wrong. Wouldn't you? Yeah, that's exactly what uh, the White House Counsel's Office thought about preemptive pardons in general. And we also know from our reporting that at the time, the president was worried about how preemptive pardons would look for his family, uh, for example. So that was a concern. But what seems clear coming out of all of this reporting is that uh, while Gates may have mentioned it, perhaps it never rose to the level of even getting to the president of the United States because it was dismissed by people inside the White House who were suspicious of Gates, never really liked him, uh, understood that he was using Donald Trump to try and get ahead politically. So they kind of tossed it aside. Yeah. And it's not exactly a full-throated defense of Matt Gates, no. who, has been, <laughs> who has been one of the president's most uh, rabid supporters. Yep. Tarini, the New York Times also has a, a new excerpt from the pending book from the former Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, uh, in which he writes, per the Times, quote, Trump incited that bloody insurrection for nothing more than selfish reasons perpetuated by the bullshit he'd been shoveling since he lost a fair election the previous November, unquote. Um, seems like a rather factual, if colorful, statement, although it is controversial. Boehner, according to the Times, also says that the Republican Party has been taken over by whack jobs. Um, do you think this is going to have any effect on the Republicans who still are in office? I mean, I think this is also just an extremely candid view of uh, the Republican Party that we're hearing from the former speaker. Um, it's unclear how much um, influence uh, former Speaker Boehner still has on the Republican Party. As he acknowledges on his own, the party has evolved a lot. 
Uh, one thing I thought that was interesting from that excerpt is that not only does he obviously blame uh, former President Trump for the insurrection, but he also talks about the, the party more broadly. He says it should have been a wake up call for the party. And, you know, he's not just talking about Ted Cruz, who's, you know, we know his feelings on Ted Cruz. We've known them for a while. But he's talking about the Republican leadership as well and the party more broadly here. Yeah. Um, speaking of candor, uh, Gloria, there's some recent comments from the Mississippi, Mississippi Secretary of State, Michael Watson. This is the guy in charge of elections in Mississippi, getting some attention. He talked to WLOX about the idea of automatic voter registration uh, and, and why he opposes it. Uh, take a listen. So think about all these woke college university students now who will automatically be registered to vote. Whether they wanted to or not, you got an uninformed citizen who may not be prepared and ready to vote. Automatically, it's forced on them. Hey, go make a choice. So he doesn't want woke, quote unquote, uninformed voters, legal eligible voters to vote. Right. And uh, if you play that out, it's because he thinks that perhaps they wouldn't vote for him or some like him. Uh, and, you know, this notion, what is woke? You know, what is he trying to say there? Uh, it's uh, liberal. Is that liberal? Is that people who are not like me? I mean, he says the quiet part out loud here, which is, no, those are not the people we want to vote. We want the people to vote who are going to vote for us. And so it's quite remarkable, actually, that he just sort of came out and said it. Yeah, and this isn't just some fringe Republican, we should point out. This is the Secretary of State of Mississippi. He's in charge of elections in Mississippi. Yes, he is. I mean, this is, you know, this is, you know, this is somebody uh, who's in charge unless the laws change in Mississippi and maybe he wouldn't be in charge. But but uh, yeah, he's sort of the uh, Brad Raffensperger, if you will, of, yeah. of Mississippi. And, and and that matters. Yeah. You know, it matters how you count votes and you need to encourage people to vote, not discourage them. And, and Trini, uh, Democrats and President Biden uh, are not just pushing uh, infrastructure, uh, they're pushing the definition of infrastructure. Uh, today, Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand tweeted, uh, paid leave is infrastructure, child care is infrastructure, caregiving is infrastructure, to which former Republican Congressman Ryan Costello said, Gillibrand is doing the Republican messaging on infrastructure. Uh, I understand the idea that anything somebody thinks is, is essential to society is infrastructure, but they're trying to pass an infrastructure bill. Um, what do you make of the politics of all this? Right. And we saw the president today actually defend this more expansive view of infrastructure in his uh, remarks today. He basically said that um, the definition has of inf infrastructure has always evolved. He said it's not only about um, you know meeting the current needs in terms of the more sort of physical, tra traditional definition of infrastructure, but looking beyond that to the future. Um, and the way the Democrats are really uh, messaging on this is bringing up competitiveness. We've heard the president say this repeatedly, bring up China. Today he framed um, you know, this bill as sort of uh, a test of democracy, talking about um, you know, whether uh, the U.S. can pass this in order to, to keep up with sort of more autocratic countries like China. You know, when infrastructure was when you first started talking about infrastructure, you weren't talking about sending broadband to rural communities because there wasn't any broadband. Now there is. So the definitions in, in this world have to evolve 
as the situation on the ground evolves. And I think that's what the president was trying to say today. All right, Gloria and Torini, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. We now know the likely cause of Tiger Woods' horrific car crash and the key piece of evidence police did not collect. What is it? That's next. Our politics lead now this afternoon, President Biden argued that the idea of infrastructure, the concept of it, is evolving as he faces criticism that his administration is attempting to redefine infrastructure with his massive $2 trillion proposal, which includes job training, funding for child care, home care for the elderly and disabled. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports today, the White House said it sees workers as the infrastructure of America's economy. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. President Joe Biden delivering a head-on defense against the growing criticism of his sweeping $2.25 trillion jobs package. We need to start seeing infrastructure through its effect on the lives of working people in America. As Republicans savage the proposal for going far beyond the bounds of traditional infrastructure, Biden moving explicitly to embrace the idea. To automatically say that the only thing is infrastructure is a highway, a bridge, or whatever, that's just not rational. It really isn't. And along the way, making clear he's open to bipartisan talks, but has no intention of scaling back his ambition. Here's what we won't be open to. We will not be open to doing nothing. Inaction simply is not an option. But the plan is already facing significant blowback, with Republicans already firmly opposed and claiming key elements aren't infrastructure at all. I'd be open to it, but not, not, what, uh, not what I think. They're peddling. On the surface, a semantic debate, but one that plays a crucial policy role and has laid the battle lines in the fight ahead, with progressives moving quickly to get behind the idea. As Senator Kirsten Gillibrand tweeted that, quote, paid leave is infrastructure, child care is infrastructure, and caregiving is infrastructure. And former House Republican and potential Pennsylvania Senate candidate Ryan Costello, quote tweeting, saying that was the equivalent of GOP messaging on infrastructure. All as Biden prepares to take his first steps on guns. I expect the president will have more to say tomorrow. Set to unveil executive action, sources say, which could include requiring background checks on handmade self-assembled firearms, known as ghost guns. And he's expected to press lawmakers on Capitol Hill to act in the wake of shootings that killed 18 in Georgia. Colorado last month. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future. And Jake, I was struck today by just how forceful President Biden's defense of his proposal was, just especially given how early it is and what's expected to be a months-long legislative process. And speaking to White House officials, they made clear it was impassioned for a reason, really making the point that in Biden's view, in the White House view, now is the time to act. And if Republicans are willing to just sit there and throw up roadblocks, they don't necessarily need to work with them at all. They want to work with Republicans here, but they're not willing to wait. Jake? All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Coming up next, a surprising new shortage related to COVID that may mean some won't be able to get ketchup with their fries. Plus, investigators releasing more details about the Tiger Woods car crash. Stick around. In our sports lead, new details on the Tiger Woods car crash. Today, the Los Angeles County Sheriff said the golf legend was driving somewhere between 84 and 87 miles per hour, about 40 miles per hour over the speed limit 
when he wrecked his car in February in Southern California. Investigators, curiously, did not seek a warrant for blood tests. They said there was no evidence of impairment or intoxication. Woods, who suffered serious leg injuries, told investigators he did not drink and was not under any medication. The captain of the Lomita Sheriff's Station said Woods likely mistook the gas pedal for the brake. The stretch of road where the crash took place is known for speeding and for crashes. You're looking at the biggest single-day protest on American soil. This was the 2017 Women's March, or put another way, the, quote, mother of all huddles. That's at least how Brooke Baldwin, my friend and colleague, describes it in her new book, Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. The book just went on sale. It's a fantastic read. We're joined now by the woman herself, CNN anchor and author Brooke Baldwin. Brooke, um, why did the Women's March leave? I mean, you've covered so many incredibly important marches and, and events. Why did that leave such an impression on you? What do you remember from that day? I I will answer your question in a second, but I'm going to do what I told you I was going to do. I told you not. I'm going to gush just for a second because, folks, Jake Tapper, when he when you found out I was writing a book, you 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 were blowing up my phone. Not only did when I have covid, you were texting me every day, which is a lot of Jake Tapper texts. But you (laughs) called me and you said, how can I help you? I've written books. How can I help you? We need men who support women huddling. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, you're my friend. How did, uh, okay, so that, that, that two days, you remember, we were all in Washington covering, it was like on a Saturday, where I, there I was, um, in the middle of the Women's March, but the day before, I'm balancing on the flatbed embedded in the, the, in the Trump motorcade as he's making his way down Constitution to go to the White House for the very first time, and so I'm standing there, you know, we're all aware of where he said he liked to grab women, and as a woman and as a journalist, let's just say I was troubled. Cut to this moment, I'm backstage at the Women's March, surrounded by half a million women, had never been surrounded by so many women in my life. I had noticed on the campaign trail women showing up in ways in this country that I had just never noticed in my 20-year career. I wanted to dig in and learn about them and dedicate the next chapter of my career to them. And just lastly, I realized, Jake, like I was standing there, like reporter hat off, thinking, would I have had a huddle to show up at this Women's March with? And I didn't. And so through the course of this book, I have activated my huddle and I want to inspire readers. So, yeah, let's let's talk about that. You know, I'm an Eagles fan. So huddle, I think of football. How do you define huddle? Uh, I purposely used a very masculine laced word because I want to flip it on its head and feminize it and and own it as women. Um, And I define a huddle as as a place where women empower one another by the mere fact of their coexistence, where you can thrive, succeed, get amazing things done. It can be trend. It can be productive or it can be a quiet space for women to bear witness for one another. You interviewed uh, so many incredible women for this book. What stood out to you from your time with with uh, someone like uh, Stacey Abrams, for example? Oh, oh, my gosh. Stacey Abrams, who, by the way, made time for me in the thick of everything happening in Georgia um, for, for, for that state in the fall, my home state of Georgia. And she talked to me about how you know, she, she, is, she is an OG huddler. I mean, she is someone who, since she was a deputy city attorney in Atlanta and had her first taste of power, told me the story of making sure these younger women, these secretaries who were brilliant in terms of, like, legislative history in Georgia, but weren't quite getting paid, she changed that. And also having been the House Minority Leader in Georgia and having to learn how to fundraise when it came to flipping Georgia blue for the first time since 1992, she shared the wealth, quite literally, and she huddled with other women in the state fighting for for that same thing, and also specifically women of color. And, well, look what they did in Georgia. I just want you to know that Alice, my daughter, uh, who's 13 now, she has a huddle. Her Girl Scout troop is a huddle. They are constantly supporting each other 
and and standing up for each other. And it's really lovely to see. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring your book home to her. It might be a little mature for her, but there's a whole chapter on girl and girls and girl huddles and all girl learning environments and and have her. I'd love to have Alice read it. I'd be honored. Okay, awesome. Our thanks to Brooke Baldwin. Buy her book, Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. It's out now. You can buy it wherever you buy books or listen to it on Audible. I will also be tweeting a link later today. From toilet paper to hand sanitizer and now possibly ketchup? Say it ain't so. The latest pandemic supply shortage impacting all French fry lovers. In our money lead, Americans survived shortages, uh, shortages of PPE, of ventilators, of toilet paper, of hand sanitizer, even of, of baking flour during this pandemic. But now some restaurants are having trouble keeping ketchup on the table after the pandemic led to a surge in demand for the individual packets for takeout, as CNN's Tom Foreman reports. <laughs> Every day across the country, restaurants are looking for customers in the midst of COVID. And at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver, Chris Fusillet is also looking for ketchup. You know, my chef came up to me one day and said, Chris, I, I got a bad problem here. I hate to tell you this, but we're out of Heinz. I go, wait a minute. What are you, what are you talking about? The ketchup shortage began with new health guidelines last year discouraging traditional dining room service and pushing drive-through, delivery, takeout, and curbside pickup. In response, out went the big bottles and in came those cute little packs perfect for takeout. Soon, demand was outpacing supply so badly, the Wall Street Journal says the seafood chain Long John Silver's spent an extra half million dollars dealing with the shortage. That's a lot of clams. Some of the restaurants we talked to got these five-gallon tubs of ketchup, you know, bulk ketchup, and they filled little souffle cups with them. They looked at, like, alternate dispensers. Um, And, again, this takes time and money to do. Heinz, which makes more ketchup than anybody else, says this month it will launch a 25% increase in production, totaling 12 billion ketchup packets a year. Liftoff. End to end, that's almost enough to go to the moon and back. And that's appropriate since, yeah, astronauts have ketchup in space. Still, with summer cookouts, camping trips, and whatever this is coming around, Condiment connoisseurs could be squeezed for a while. Back in Colorado, where Major League Baseball's All-Star Game is on the way, Chris is just hoping he can keep up with the ketchup demand. (laughs) I want to order extra now. No kid, I got 100 days. So add ketchup to toilet paper and cleaning supplies, because after all, not long ago, we were throwing these around like confetti. Now they're more like gold. Jake. <laughs> All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Before we go today, we want to take the time to wish a very happy birthday to a very special member of the Lead family. Elizabeth Pounds is turning 100 years old today. 100. She is the grandmother of our beloved lead producer, Charlita Rodriguez. She was born April 7th, 1921. At the time, Warren G. Harding was president. Gas was about 20 cents a gallon. Now, she lives in Haddock, Georgia, the town through her a birthday parade. Now she says her secret to a long life, keep moving, treat people the way you want to be treated. Happy birthday. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jake Tapper, tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. 
And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.